This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health, a new, fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit cineoshealth.com podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is June 27th, and this is The Healthcare Show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and healthcare specialist Todd Campbell is calling into the studio here in Alexandria, Virginia. We're continuing our 25 years theme week today in celebration of The Motley Fool's 25th anniversary, which is coming up this Saturday. So in this episode, Todd and I will reflect on what healthcare looked like 25 years ago and also where we see it going over the next 25 years. Ready to dive in, Todd? I am. So let's hop in our time machine and go back to 1993 and take a trip to the doctor's office. Todd, you will remember what that was like a lot more than I will, given my age at the time. What stands out in your memory? Well, I was about one year out of college at the time, so I didn't have to go too, too often, luckily. Um, you know, I, I suppose I would have gotten into my my Acura Integra. <laughs> <laughs> the way back machine, right? Uh, and I would have, I would have uh, gone to my doctor's office. You know, if you look at back and thinking about what it was like going back to the doctor back then, I think one of the things that jumps out at me, and it may jump out to other other of the listeners who who are, are my age or up, maybe just the the perception that we have that when we walked into a doctor's office all those years ago, the doctor actually knew who we were. <laughs> you know, before they had to pull up a a, a chart on their. Uh, on the computer when they walked into the office. And, you know, I, that, that could just be, that could be a misperception. You know, the memory tends to, tends to, you know, bend things in weird ways as we get a little bit older, right? But I felt that, you know, assistants weren't as, weren't doing as much as the work in the actual office. I mean, you, you waited in the waiting room just like you would today for a relatively long period of time. And then you would go into the office. But I feel like it was the doctor who was doing things like blood pressure testing and, and asking you some of these basic questions now that have been handed off to assistants. And I think you see that not just in in you know primary care, but you also see that in other parts of healthcare, like in, in dental. You know, I don't know how often you see your dentist, Christine. I go a few times a year. Um, most of the time that I spend in the dentist chair, I, I'm talking with my hygienist, not my dentist. And, and I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to get into it, but it definitely feels to me like, you know, over the, over time, uh, doctors have become more time strapped and that could be one of the biggest <clears throat> trends or changes over the last 25 years. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's because there are fewer doctors out there now or if there's just a greater demand for healthcare, but it certainly seems like that is the case. And if you just look at the demographics of our entire society, where people are getting older, they're living longer, a lot of diseases that used to be a death sentence have become more manageable to the point where they're chronic conditions, and it just requires a lot more healthcare. Uh, so it, it definitely does seem to me to be the case that when we look towards the next 25 years, we're going to need to find a way to increase the supply of healthcare, whether that's through adding more doctors or hopefully also using clever tech and innovation to better be able to meet that rising demand. But yeah, to your point, Christine, you know, I went back and I looked at it because I, I wanted to try and get some data to put this in context for our listeners. And one of the things that I found is back in 1993, right, when, when uh, the gardeners were just getting started on their foolish journey, 
the total number of doctor visits that were performed was about 717 million. That climbed between 1993 and 2010 by almost 40%. Now, you would assume, right, Christine, that some of that's going to be because, well, your population's getting getting bigger, right? But the population only increased by about 19% in the period. So you had a situation not only where you, you know, having this people living longer, et cetera, but you also had this scenario playing out where more people were seeing the doctor more frequently, I think climbing from 2.7 to 3.2 visits per year. Uh, and you're right that this is this is really taxing the supply of doctors. And I think that we've spent a lot of of resources and time and policy trying to figure out how to handle the the to increase demand, right? Make healthcare accessible to everyone. Maybe we need to start spending a lot more time on trying to figure out how to make sure there are enough doctors, nurse practitioners, and physicians assistants out there to to, to serve everyone who needs the care. Yeah, it does seem like there's a pretty obvious need here for some sort of solution. What stands out to me when I think about what going to the doctor was like 25 years ago was how little has changed about the entire experience. And I get the impression that part of the reason that so many young people are reluctant to go to the doctor is because of how antiquated the entire system is. You know, we're used to technology meeting us at the level that we want to be at in so many areas of our lives. I can book my fitness classes online. But I can't book my annual checkup online with my doctor. Um, Facebook seems like it knows everything about me. But then when I go into a doctor's office, I still have to fill out my date of birth and all these other very basic facts of my, my personal information on physical pieces of paper. Look at consumer goods, too. For example, uh, when I want to buy my paper towels or anything, I can very easily price shop. I can go online and I can compare prices from place to place and get a very easy quote. But you can't do that for medical services and for medicines themselves. So it, it really does seem like in all of the other sectors, these pain points have been greatly diminished, if not completely uh, eliminated, except for in healthcare. And so when I look at the changes that could be on the way for the next 25 years in healthcare, I think the best thing we can do is look to other sectors for a hint of how exactly will the new trends take place and how will other sectors handle the transition to an advancement before it makes its way over into the seemingly much slower healthcare sector. And healthcare does move more slowly. There's no getting around that. I think one of the main you know, drivers possibly of of some of the changes and the disruption that we've seen over the last decade or so uh, has been stemmed by, been forced by regulatory change. I remember like the High Tech Act and some of these things we've talked in the show about before, just trying to <laughs> encourage with carrots and sticks uh, practices to go out and actually institute some of this technology. But again, there's a there's that old saying, we can do it fast, we can do it well, we can do it cheap, pick two. You know, it's, it, when it comes to healthcare, you're talking about, um, you know, a doctor-patient relationship where that's where the focus should be. And a lot of what technology does is, is aimed at, you know, streamlining or potentially coming in at odds with increasing the amount of time that you spend with your patients um, on, on coming up with, with real solutions. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, there's, there's a dynamic there at play that, that, just forces a slower adoption rate of some of these things because people want to push back and say, no, I want to be able to have that close interaction with my patient. 
in, I think ultimately, though, Christine, I think it sounds like you're going to agree with me. You're going to have to approach these kind of innovations if you want to be able to handle the demand that we're going to see from patients, right? People are living longer. Things are, are happening now that are, are turning diseases that were once death sentences into chronic diseases. You know, that all of that is going to increase demand. And trying to figure out the way to handle all that demand is going to involve all sorts of different things. And one of the things that we've seen uh, over the course of the last few years, Christine, right, is the consolidation across the industry. So you've got a lot of private practices that are banding together, becoming part of hospital networks, because <clears throat> the hospital networks will say, well, we'll take over the administrative burden of that, and that way that frees you to still visit with your patients. But at the same time, these are now viewed as profit centers because of all the complexity that's associated with the industry and the way payments are generated. So the hospital systems are saying now, well, you need to schedule every a patient every 11 minutes ever, instead of every 15 minutes. And that makes it, that's, that's creating so many different stresses throughout the system and the way healthcare is provided to, to Americans. You're right that there is this sort of tension between how can we automate things and make them more efficient and how can we keep things high touch and a good experience for the person. And I want to go back to the reluctance that you were talking about where people don't want to spend more time with a computer as opposed to their doctor. And I don't think that that's something that's unique to the healthcare system. You saw some reluctance, say, with the rise of e-commerce where people were like, no, I don't want to buy my clothes from Amazon. I want to go in the store and touch them and try them on. But slowly but surely, people were won over by the convenience of this easier, simpler online interaction. And I think that we're seeing that unfold in healthcare, specifically with telehealth. Uh, we've talked a little bit about a company called Teladoc on this show. And I, I think that this is something that will be a trend that really takes prominence, not even in 25 years, but maybe over the next five or so years. More and more employers are offering uh, insurance plans that give you access to telehealth. And I think people are starting to recognize that there are so many reasons uh, why you would prefer a telehealth visit over actually having to go into a medical office. Especially if you're sick, right? If you're sick, you're saying, you're, the last thing I want to do is go sit in an office and cough over everyone, <laughs> you know, and wait 15, 20 minutes and then get into there and have a bunch of questions asked. And then my doctor comes in 15, 20 minutes later. I mean, that's an hour, an hour and a half before you actually get a prescription to take to the pharmacy. So I think that there's a lot of advantages that come with telehealth. I mean, it's on demand. You mentioned a lot of employers. Yeah, I think it's like 90% of large employers now offer some form of telehealth service. So listeners, if you work for a big company, you probably have access to this and you just may not know about it. I think the most recent statistics showed that only 3% of employees actually take advantage of telehealth. My expectation though, Christine, would be that as millennials represent an increasingly larger percentage of, of the workforce, their willingness to accept and adopt technology throughout their entire life, they're going to be uh, the big drivers, I suppose, of the adoption of, of telemedicine or telehealth. And, you know, that would be potentially huge for a company like Teladoc. I mean, they say that their addressable patient uh, market is something like $57 billion. Yeah, I think last year their sales were only $233 million. So, I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity for time-saving um, solutions like that. I also, Christine, think another one of these solutions could be increasing use of um, 
of virtual reality type devices, which you know can obviously help on the supply end by by training more doctors and more healthcare providers, but can also help patients by providing them with greater insight into into different healthcare issues and other technologies and medical devices. I mean, we've talked in the past about diabetes and some of the things that are occurring in diabetes with the artificial pancreas and different things that are allowing us to better monitor and track our disease, such as healthcare wearables. All of those things are providing so much information that I think will be used in exciting ways to maybe automate a lot of the healthcare that we're provided. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, say, you know, taking over a huge population of data and being able to find best practices that can just be rolled out very automatically and, and you know, more efficiently to have better outcomes across the entire population. Yeah, the broader trend that you're speaking to here is using tech to assist human decision making and execution. And it's something that, again, we see in other sectors. Uh, for example, think about self-driving cars. Uh, machines are already helping humans drive pretty prominently with semi-autonomous vehicles with features like lane assist. And there's the healthcare equivalent. The one that comes to mind for me is in robotic surgery. Intuitive Surgical has their Da Vinci Surgical Systems, which help surgeons perform their surgeries better. And of course, this leads to better outcomes for the patients and shorter stays in hospitals. So again, this is taking that burden of demand off of the healthcare system little by little by harnessing technology. Another one that I want to emphasize is artificial intelligence. Uh, Todd, you talked a little bit about making better use of data, and I think that's huge. I really want to emphasize that there are so many applications of AI in healthcare. The one I'm most excited about is in diagnostics and, and using better data, better information, and harnessing everything that computers can do now to make better diagnoses. Um, if you think about uh, how many false positives occur across a bunch of different indications, I feel like there's a huge opportunity there to bring those numbers down and be more precise. Fields in radiology and dermatology, um, I could see ophthalmology, all of these are really ripe for layering in machine learning, deep learning, and AI, AI power um, to be able to drive efficiencies. Yeah, it's almost like a trend towards predictive healthcare, right? So you, they're taking it one step earlier. So it's not just preventative, it's predictive, <laughs> you know, where you're able to take a look at some of these insights into DNA or whatever and be able to come to some some uh, decisions early on about what kind of health crises we may face over our lifetimes and then be able to intervene before, you know, we even have can suffer any of the symptoms. Um, all of those things could play in. I mean, you mentioned robotic surgery. That's a great example. I mean, obviously, these robots aren't doing the surgery themselves yet, but they are assisting. And when they're assisting, they are reducing complications, which means, you know, fewer readmissions uh, and better outcomes for patients and payers. And I think that you, there's a lot of different opportunities to do that by, you know, blending together, I guess, you know, wearables data collection or recording, uh, the reporting of that data, uh, the analysis of that data, and then, of course, coming to the conclusions from that data on, on what the most appropriate treatment should be. I think the next 25 years, we're going to see the pace of innovation in healthcare be much faster than it was the last 25 years. Absolutely. And we'll be right back with more after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. 
At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, they have created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com podcast. All right, we've already spent a bunch of time speculating about the future and the next 25 years, but now we're going to get back in that time machine once again and go back actually a little bit more than 25 years to the launch of the Human Genome Project. This kicked off in 1990, and it was the beginning of a tidal wave of advancement in gene sequencing. Todd, can you give us a primer to begin with about what what that project even has to do with anything? Well, DNA is like a blueprint for how our bodies work. And our understanding of how our bodies work really has been quite limited uh, up until the 1990s when they engaged in this massive program to go out and try and, and you know, sequence the entire human genome and be able to, I guess, map it out in ways that allow us to, to then um, dive in and look for discoveries and in what kind of what genes produce what proteins and how can we manipulate those genes in ways to come up with with treatments or personalized or precision medicines which is where we are at today at the time it was it was just a massive undertaking i mean the the costs that were uh, projected to be associated with putting this um putting this project together uh, stretch into the billions of dollars um and you know we're talking about uh, a decade worth of research to do something that I suppose now you could do in, in with a flip of a switch. But at the time, incredibly game-changing, and now the fruits of that labor being borne out, uh, one of the most important, I think, projects undertaken in the last 25 years. Absolutely. That project got everything started when it came to a better understanding of the human genome. And so that was a publicly funded project. There are also private efforts at play here. In 1998, a company called Selexa was founded, which was eventually bought out by Illumina, another name that we talk about on the show all the time. They purchased Selexa in 2006. And something that Illumina's investor materials reference all the time is something called Moore's Law, which is this concept borrowed from the tech world. And it has to do with the processing power of computers roughly doubling every year. And so it's basically just a, a benchmark of an incredible pace for progress. So Illumina references this pretty frequently because their technology has outpaced Moore's Law, which is already held up as the standard of incredible pace for advancement. Uh, and they've done even better. And so the, their most recent sequencer that they launched just this year holds the promise of a $100 sequence, which when you think about the fact that the Human Genome Project costs roughly $3 billion, that is just an insane advancement. And it gives us a really fun platform to then talk about our, our projections for the future. What are we going to do with all this data? $3 billion. And now we're talking less than a thousand dollars. I mean, that's just amazing. It just goes to show you in one way um, how how big spending up front can spark an entire development of, of an of an industry um, and an industry obviously now that's that's 
resulting in, in the development of, of incredible advances in, in patient treatment across a number of different diseases. You know, back in 2001, Francis Collins, who at the time was the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, the people behind uh, this project, he described the work that they were doing as a book. Um, a history book, if you will, a narrative of the journey of our species through time, a shop manual with an incredibly detailed blueprint for building every human cell. And it's a transformative textbook of medicine with insights that will give healthcare providers immense new powers to treat, prevent, and cure disease. And that was in 2001. And now today, in 2018, we're already um, benefiting from the launch of gene therapies they're I mean they're revolutionary in what they're doing for patients Luxterna which you and I Christine have talked about on the show before jumps to mind as one a gene therapy that's used to restore vision in people by replacing a gene that is um, mutated and faulty with one that works properly and we've also seen advances in gene therapy in cancer care uh, over the course of the last year, the approval of Yescarta and Camraya, uh, CAR-T drugs that actually take T cells out of patient bodies, re-engineer them, and then put them back in the body so that they can go out and find and destroy cancer. I mean, it really is quite a remarkable um, uh, decade, I will, of discovery that's now you know proving out into these treatments that I think you know are are going to really just be life saving for so many people. And that pace is going to accelerate, Christine, I think. I agree. And I also think that there are consumer applications that you'll see coming out uh, every single day at a, a really incredible pace. When you think about how gene sequencing stands right now, most people are getting this information through companies like 23andMe, and they're mostly interested in their ancestry reports. But more and more applications are becoming available. Um, things like your physical fitness or things like uh, dietary uh, responses in your body that maybe you didn't know about until you were able to receive this data. Illumina actually founded a company called Helix, which its whole goal is to create this central repository where it has your sequenced genome, and then there are apps layered on top of it where if you want that information about maybe genetic information about how you should restrict your diet or what have you. That could be an application that kind of sits on top of that central repository and you can access it to get the information that you want. And I, I think that there's an even broader point to be made here about access to data. Right now, it's kind of tough to get your medical records and your your information about your body that is so, so personal, and yet it's locked away in these not interoperable medical records. And it just it feels like you don't really own or have access to your own information. And genetic information is just one component of that. But I see a broader trend towards democratization of data. And I, I think in in healthcare, People will, will demand it at a certain point. They will demand that they have ownership of their information and that they have convenient access to their data. We're seeing this a little bit already with stuff like the iPhone's health app. Um, we're seeing more and more companies that are interested in fixing the EHR space and, and making it so that your medical records are able to talk from one, uh, from one doctor's office to another. But I think we still have a long way to go. 
we absolutely have a long way to go. It's it's I, I want to say it's kind of embarrassing given the access that we have to data right now on our personal lives, how easily we can share that with everybody, both intentionally and unintentionally. Right, Christine? Um, I think one of the things that we're going to have to try and figure out is almost like some sort of a blockchain type system for allowing that access to to be verified and then you know freeing all that information to flow without having to have say a HIPAA release signed by every single person who may view it you could go into a blockchain and say okay well there's a HIPAA release here it's obviously been approved for everybody and then being able to share that across any kind of system um, to try and come up with some of these these developments I have a hard time believing Christine that that's not where we're heading, that we're going to be eventually in a world where everybody's going to have their genetic genomic profiles uh, uh, somewhere, right? That we'll be able to analyze that genomic profile for early intervention into Z, preventative or predictive, um, and that all of the data is going to be able to be leveraged by AI in ways that, that allow us to make sure that the right treatment is getting to the right person at the right time. Um, it truly is going to be a pretty exciting exciting time. And I think that genome, genomics and you know the work that was done on the Human Genome Project going back all the way into the early 90s when the Motley Fool was, was just being born, um, I think that's, that is what's facilitating really all of this. And things will move slowly. They'll continue to be frustrating. By the time we have interoperable medical records figured out, there will be some new advancement that's proliferated the other sectors, probably, and will be exasperated that healthcare hasn't caught up. But it's so apparent that the wheels of progress are continuing to turn. And as investors, we should look to the companies that have a great vision for the future and are making progress towards it. Absolutely 100% agree, Christine, right? I mean, we mentioned a couple of them on the show already. Uh, Teladoc being one in telehealth earlier on in the show. Um, Apple's doing some pretty exciting things. Illumina is obviously a very intriguing company, and so is Intuitive Surgical. All of those are, are companies that make that have me thinking they're multi-decade, that can benefit from multi-decade trends. Yeah, and it's one of the privileges of being an investor, where you get to be a part of this in some small way, and watching it is just a lot of fun, too. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal 
shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit sinioshealth.com slash podcast.